0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning.
1: Good morning and welcome to Providence. We are so glad that you're here this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, we want to welcome you and we hope that you felt welcomed when you walked through the doors this morning. We're just so grateful you chose to gather with us today. Uh, my name is Lauren Schreiber and I serve a Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. Uh, and Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so one way that we commit to do that is that we're always going to open our Bibles together um, on Sunday mornings when we gather because we believe that the word of God was given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so this morning we're going to continue through our series called King and Crown where we have been walking through the book of Mark since the beginning of the year. Um, and we've been talking about obviously the life of Jesus through the book of Mark, but also how our culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ, Um, and so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, so if you have uh, your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have a hard copy of the text and you'd prefer to be in one, we do have Bibles under some of the seats around the room so you can grab one, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one home as a gift from us, so Um, Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, so when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 23. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand... And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning, everyone. Got some apocalyptic scripture to get through here. (laughs) I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Uh, We really hope you enjoy yourself this morning in a little bit of a rare passage for us, but we're going to do what we can. We've got a lot of work to do, and we're going to be covering chapter 13 in two successive weeks. Uh, This is a passage, one of those passages in the scriptures and particularly in the New Testament that's filled with controversy, uh, filled with intrigue, mystery. I'm going to do my best over the next couple weeks to faithfully unpack it, uh, search it out with you, uh, leave the mystery that's there that uh, we don't quite understand to be mystery, but also to mine the areas that we should find understanding uh, that'll lead us to to worship. So, we've got a few things to do. The first is going to be we're going to have to do some historical work. Uh, so, I just want you I'm, I'm preparing you for this so we can pray together, okay? We're going to have to do some history of what happened in the time of Jesus, particularly uh, in the destruction of the temple. And so, I want you to kind of just stick with me. If you're the person that's kind of like, oh man, I didn't really enjoy history class, stay with me. It matters. We're going to have to do a little bit of theological history on the temple and the significance of it. And then at the end, talk about what does it mean for us and so I want you to expect over the next two weeks we're going to talk this today about what did Jesus say that was obviously fulfilled and has been fulfilled in the time that Jesus said those words and then next week we're going to take some time and we're going to say okay but what if what do we see in this passage that still should give us an indication that there's words here that we ought to take seriously about what is to come. Okay, we're going to do those two things. So if you're a person who's like, uh, you read this a specific way, and so I start walking through this and say, I think these things have been fulfilled, and you're like, ah, and you start getting, just wait till next week, give me time. We'll be okay. All right, we're going to do this together in the Lord's name. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into it. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you, my God, for your word that is true. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, and that even prophecies like this about the destruction of the temple that we are so far removed from, we know that there is cosmic, eternal, spiritual meaning there, and we do pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to experience and receive what it means that the temple was destroyed and you've ushered in a new covenant in your blood. Help us to rejoice in that by the end of this morning and to bring glory to your name for all that has been done. In the name of your glorious son, Jesus Christ, and we do pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. So this passage, I would contend, is what we see oftentimes in the Old and New Testament as a dual prophecy. And what I mean by that is, uh, just like we find in the book of Isaiah, or in the book of Jeremiah, that these prophets were prophesying to a specific people of Israel at a specific time about nations at their times, We also know when we read the New Testament that the New Testament writers will quote those men and say that they were talking about a future Messiah as well. So you see things like the the prediction of the birth of Christ in the book of Isaiah is inside of a chapter that is a prophecy about surrounding nations and kings that will also be destroyed. And that both of those things happened. That there was a fulfillment of that prophecy when the kings and the nations were destroyed around Isaiah's time and near to there. And there's a more full fulfillment in the person of Christ being born at the time that Isaiah predicted he would be born. I'll give you an example of this just so it makes sense beyond just my words. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 11 through 13. This is Samuel prophesying to David about something that will happen in his life and it's a dual prophecy and you'll get it immediately when you read it most likely. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is Samuel speaking to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So for the Christian, we read that and we think it's Jesus. Okay. And that's because we have the privilege of being 2000 years on this side of the first advent. We say, of course, Christ is the one son of David built a house for the name of God. But the first fulfillment, the near term fulfillment of this passage was Solomon, who was the immediate son of David, who happened to also build the first temple the house of the Lord. Does this make sense? So the near term fulfillment of that prophecy from Samuel is that Solomon from his very body, his offspring would build a house, a physical house, a temple. And he would dedicate that temple later on in the book of Kings. And that's where the spirit of God would dwell. And we know that the Christological fulfillment or the more complete fulfillment is that Christ was the son of David who came from his very own body and yet built a house for the Lord namely what you and I, amen. Does that make sense? That's what I mean by dual prophecy. Mark thirteen is one of those prophecies. Jesus is answering the question of his disciples about a prediction that he made that no stone would be left on one another in Jerusalem, in the buildings in the temple. And that's the near term fulfillment of this prophecy is that in seventy A.D. and this is where my focus is going to be this morning in seventy A.D. the the temple and all of Jerusalem was destroyed by a siege of the Roman Empire. And the Emperor Vespasian's son Titus destroyed Jerusalem. But also, it's obvious that there are portions of this text that Jesus is giving not just a warning to his disciples, but to all who would hear him. These words that would include final prophecy of the final judgment type of fulfillment, these words that tend to lead us more towards revelation. That's why there's always been certain connections that have been made. Sun and moon and stars being darkened and no man knowing the day and the hour. We've made these connections between, let's say, Daniel, who has these kinds of words, and then Matthew 24, and then Mark 13, and then the book of Luke as well, and then the book of Revelation, and then Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, and I can go on and on. We make these connections that there's words here that we should take seriously regarding a second coming. We'll talk about that next week. My focus is about the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy and the destruction of Jerusalem, what significance it has for the grand narrative of Scripture, and then lastly, what should we do about it? What should it draw us to do this morning? What is it? What does the Bible call us to do in light of it? So let's begin reading, and I'm going to do this as, in as timely a fashion as I can, and I want you to forgive me. I have done an overt amount of uh, work this week to make sure that this was, I saw this one coming whenever we actually decided to preach through Mark, okay? So I'm prepared. I read again this week, the wars of the Jews by Josephus to really get uh, refreshed about the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. But I can't quote, I, I decided not to put the quotes directly, and the reason for that is because we got a lot of kids in the room, and uh, this is, a, after all, a historian of war. There's some brutal stuff in some of these quotes, okay, about what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem. I encourage you to read them. I'm going to do my best for both time and also for the sake of your kids and your lunch to, uh, to give you the parenthetical references, and, but I do encourage you, read this up for yourselves and see if what I'm saying uh, is true. So let's start in chapter 13, verse number one. As he came out of the temple, this being Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here we see uh, angry Jesus again, or at least straightforward Jesus, uh, where he says, hey, look at, you know, it's really beautiful. All of this is coming down. Now this comes on the heels of Jesus being questioned in Jerusalem and particularly around the temple. And they've been questioning him about his ministry. They're trying to accuse him. They're going to arrest him. There is a judgment that is going to come on Jesus in this city, at this temple, and then they will crucify him. And within a generation, there will be a judgment on this city and these people, and the temple the temple itself will be torn. The body of Christ, the temple, is torn in 30 or 33 AD, depending upon who you read. The temple itself is torn and destroyed in 70 AD, not a generation later. And Jesus here predicts this. Verse 3. Here's why we know that this is the predominant purpose of his words, not the only, but the predominant is because verse three, he sits on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. I want you to picture Peter and James and John and Andrew privately talking to Jesus as they look at the temple. And they ask him, tell us when these things will be, what things, when will this thing be destroyed? When will the stones be torn down? When all these things are about to be accomplished Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, and these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, of course, this should call to mind our remembrance. If you've read the book of Revelation, these things have parallels. But here, what I want to note is that if you read Josephus, which Josephus, if you're not familiar with this, was a Jewish general, a Jewish man who served in one of the cities of Galilee during the Roman invasion in 70 AD, or in 69 AD, really. And his city got captured. Josephus also got captured, and he became one of the men who went around with Vespasian at first, and then when Vespasian becomes the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, his son Titus Josephus goes with the warriors of Rome all the way to Jerusalem and he begins to plead with his countrymen to come out and and just give themselves up to surrender because they're going to be destroyed he's already been destroyed by the romans and he's telling them you need to surrender too and josephus writes down the history of the wars of the jews now I want to mention to you josephus was a historian long before this he wrote the antiquities of the jews and so he has a lot of works but i would say what better witness do we have than Josephus as an eyewitness to what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed? And he's very meticulous about what he writes. And it, is, it reads like a war history. So you're going to get things like this battle happened and this many people died. And this, were the, this is how they did their battle attacks. And so-and-so went to this wall. And then so-and-so went to this wall. And they tore down this wall. And then they poured oil down on them and burned them. And it's really ruthless, okay? And it reads like this. But at the time, Josephus tells us the context. He tells us two particular things. Number one, false prophets had arisen in the land after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and they had utilized the idea of them being the Messiah as means through which they could gain political power to be zealots to overthrow the Roman government. Because remember, we've talked about this. The Jews expected a Messiah who was a governmental leader who could overthrow Rome and get them out of their oppression. And these false prophets took advantage of that. And they led many astray. At the time, Jerusalem gets captured by three factions of political dissidents with different men who led the factions. By the time Rome sieges Jerusalem in 70 AD and camps about it and cuts off all the water, cuts off all the food, cuts off everybody coming in, there are two major political factions which, not coincidentally but providentially, have the names of John and Simon kind of an inversion of the true disciples, okay? John and Simon lead these two political factions on opposite ends of the city. John lives in the temple with his men and they go out and they fight against Simon's men and fight against the villagers and bleed and die and get wounded and they crawl back into the temple and desecrate the temple with blood. I mean, it's just terrible what these men were doing. And Josephus records it and says they're just defiling the temple. They kill the high priests, they throw them over the walls, and they declare themselves to be the ones that are going to be doing the work now. Simon's on the other side of the city and he fights against them. And these two men are both seditionists and they both basically believe that they can be messianic-like figures to save the Jews from the Romans. Now, as this is going on, what they don't know is that Titus is leading a legion to come and besiege the city. They're fighting each other, thinking maybe we can get control of Jerusalem, but they have this false sense of security and peace because there has been so many wars and rumors of wars in Rome that every time the Romans would begin to besiege the city, somebody else would come in and start having war in Rome. They'd have to pull back and fight. And so the Jews started feeling like they're never gonna get us. And then it happened. Jesus says here, there'll be false Christ. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. And when there are, You need to know that the time's getting ready. Let's continue. But be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in the synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, I want you to understand that this describes to a T the book of Acts, and the life the disciples were living in the Roman Empire at this time. I wrote this down just for brevity, but you can go home and, and you can check this out for yourself. Acts chapter 4, Peter, James, and John are brought before the Jerusalem council and beaten and whipped because of they preached in the name of Jesus, and they're told to stop doing so. Acts 23, Paul is brought before, uh, sorry, Acts 21, he's brought into Jerusalem, and he's He's beaten and brought to trial before the Jews, and he has to give a defense for the gospel. Acts 23, he's brought before the Roman council. Acts 24, he's brought before the governor Felix. Acts 25, he's brought before Agrippa and Bernice. And Acts 28, he's finally brought all the way to Rome. This was regular for the early church to be brought before these councils and persecuted and harmed. Extra biblical literature, historical literature, like Josephus, tell us that James, who was the brother, the half-brother, of course, he was Joseph and and Mary's child. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was killed and stoned while this political sedition was happening in the city of Jerusalem. That James was constantly trying to preach the gospel to them and call these people to repentance and to hear the words of Christ, and finally they killed James and threw him over the wall of Jerusalem. This was the brother of Christ. So this was regular at this time. Total betrayal happened constantly at this time. And Jesus here says that you should expect it to happen. Now, I want to point out one verse that I believe has a dual meaning, and it's always picked up here to say, there's no way this is about 70 AD because there's this line about the gospel being preached to all the nations. Now, I I believe that there's two senses in which we should interpret this. One is that, of course, we have the evangelical mandate to go and preach the gospel to all the nations, and I don't believe that the second coming of Christ uh, is is going to happen until we continue that, that work of evangelization of all of the nations. However, I want to read Romans 16 on how Paul wrote about the gospels going, gospel going to all the nations. And I want you to think of it in the same term of, uh, let's say when the book of Matthew starts, it says that now when Quirinius was governor of Syria, there, there became a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Well, was the whole world registered or was it the known world of the Roman world, the known world of the Roman world? But the way that the writers wrote that was the whole world because that's how they wrote historically. Jesus says something similar. Listen to this in Romans 16. This is kind of like Paul saying, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept for secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to what? To all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. So Paul, at the end of Romans, is saying, hey, we've we've published the gospel to all the nations. What does he mean? To all the known world at the time. Why is that significant? Because it it was important, it was essential that in the Roman Empire and all of the known world, the gospel would go out as a testimony and a witness against Jerusalem before the judgment came to take the old covenant and transfer into the new covenant. If this moment was to happen, the gospel had to go out. The people had to hear Christ was crucified, resurrected and ascended and he was crucified, resurrected and ascended in Jerusalem, that his own people had rejected the true Messiah. This message had to go out before the destruction of the temple. Now, a couple of other things that I wish we had more time, but we got to get into Hebrews is things like verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not stand, parentheses, let the reader understand. Now, the reason that that's written there is because this is a term that's in the book of Daniel, abomination of desolation that's predicted by Daniel. Most people think Antiochus Epiphanes was the fulfillment of Daniel, but here Jesus says, hey, the abomination of desolation still hasn't come. You should expect him, let the reader understand, most people believe in 70 AD that the abomination of desolation is represented by Titus who finally goes into the temple after the Jews had desecrated the temple. He goes in and declares himself to be God. Again, I believe that both are true and that there's a pattern happening here that there will be abominations of desolation that will come and continue to come until the final time of Jesus's Return, but we'll talk about that more next week. Finally, what you see is a great tribulation and deception that leads to it. And that's how this passage mostly ends in verse 23, or this stanza. I just want to read to you the facts, not the actual statement, because again, they're pretty brutal. These are the facts of how Jerusalem was destroyed after five and a half months or six months of siege, which means they cut off the water, they cut off the food, and people began to starve to death. There was famine. Josephus said that one of the things that made this so tragic was that the Romans had shown up on a feast day, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is near the Passover. So Jerusalem was not filled with its normal inhabitants, but it was filled with maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 20 times more inhabitants than normal because everybody was there for the feast day. And now they're besieged from all sides and they can't get out. And so Josephus says that his estimate is 1.2 million people die in this destruction. That's massive. Massive. There's such a famine that there's recordings of cannibalism, infantile cannibalism amongst the people. The temple's defiled over and over again. The city is burned completely. By the end, Josephus records that only three towers remain, and all of them are Roman garrisons. They're Roman watchtowers. Everything else burned or destroyed in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the question that we need to answer is why is that significant? Why is it in each gospel? Why does it keep this is not the only reference, by the way. Why do you think it is that Paul will say that, know you not that you're the temple of God? This idea that there was a transition from place temple Jerusalem to us being the temple is a theme throughout all the New Testament. Why? And the answer to this question is that we must know the old covenant in order to understand why it's so significant. This is my contention. The transition from the old covenant to the new covenant Necessitated a judgment of cosmic proportions on the old to inaugurate the new. I want to say this and then we're going to start reading through Hebrews. So, this is where we're going to kick into more theological stuff. Keep your uh, kind of learning helmets on here with me. These four things I used alliteration for memory. What does the temple represent? It's a place of worship. It's the place where there's payment made for worship. It's a place where there's worship through a person, so the high priest. And then, lastly, it's the place that the promises are fulfilled. The promises are extended. So those are the four things. You have place, you have payment, you have person, high priest, you have promise. Okay. Now let's read Hebrews chapter number eight. And we're going to go through a number of sections of Hebrews. I want to show you how there's a transition happening and why the temple being destroyed was necessary in the new Testament. Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through six. Now the point in what we are saying is this, by the way, if you get that in your Bible, that's gold. Rarely do you get that. Let's keep going. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Ha, there's their person. There's a transition from the high priest of Israel, who's a succession of lineage of personhood, through the tribe of Levi that has to take this role and continue to do sacrifices. But now we have one high priest who's eternal. His name is Christ. There's a transition that happens. And where's he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. That's a lot of locale talk, a lot of place talk. Jesus ministers not on the earthly temple, but in a heavenly temple, which is mentioned both in the old and the new testaments. We're going to get into it in a second. And he has a true tent, not only his body that was, it was broken, but the true tent, which is what you and I, where the Holy spirit now dwells and he ministers both in heaven and in us. So there we have the place. Verse three for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. There's your payment. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he being Jesus, he would not be the priest at all since they're already priests who offer gifts according to the law. But listen, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Remember, When Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on this mountain. I want you to refer back to our Exodus series. If you go back and listen to it, Moses is specifically told to follow a heavenly pattern because there is an earthly temple and a heavenly temple. And the earthly temple is built according to those designs. And he is told to follow the same pattern. You're going to see why here in a moment. It's because Jesus, after being crucified, resurrected, and ascending, will go into the heavenly temple, and he will attend to those rites. Let's continue. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So there's the last one, the the promises. Better promises. So we see all four. Jesus is the payment. He creates this new place where he will dwell, namely you and I. He is the priest and he enacts it on better promises. Now let's go Hebrews chapter seven. Let's go through these, each of them individually. Chapter seven, starting in verse 23. Why is it important that Jesus is our high priest? Well, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. So here's the problem is that Human beings and human being priests die, and you have to replace them by new priests. By the end, before the destruction of Jerusalem, they had so many high priests that every other month they were getting a new high priest because a new governor would be instituted, and that new governor wants another priest that's more close to his political faction. So they just keep interchanging these priests. Here's what the book of Hebrews says. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We do not have to wait for new priests to be instituted, but we have a priest who continues forever and ever and ever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What do you do when you have an interim high priest? Does that mean there's an interim forgiveness? What do you do when one of your high priests dies and they haven't chose the new high priest? Who's making intercession for you then? I don't want to go off on a jag, but we could talk a lot about that, couldn't we? Human-made human religions that were relying on priests in order to intercede for them, but Christians rely on Christ who intercedes eternally and always because he never dies, never sleeps, and he always intercedes. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, listen to these words, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Let me tell you something, there's no pastor that could ever say those things about himself. There's no priest that could ever say those things about himself in totality. I'll read it to you again. There is no man who is fully holy and fully innocent and fully unstained and fully separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. No, but Christians, you and I can claim those things for ourselves if we are in the high priest who is all of those things in and of himself. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints, excuse me, men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The Old Testament and even now New Testament high priest would have to go into the temple and they'd have to sacrifice for their own sins and then the sins of the people. But when the son of the living God entered into the presence of the father and made sacrifice once for all, it was not for his own sin because he was sinless, but only for our sin. And then he sat down on the, ma- on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high and he put it into all offerings because his offering was final. Let's continue. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the old covenant was inadequate because ultimately the blood of bulls and goats could not remit sin or cleanse it entirely. It could only push sins back. The guilt of sin was waiting on you until the next feast because the sin of man is too great for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time that his, his, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all, all time, those who are being sanctified. So Christ goes in, I want you to focus on this. Christ is crucified as the lamb. This is all happening in the sense in Jerusalem, okay? Near the temple. And and on earth, this is happening. He's crucified. And as he cries out at the end of Jesus' life, he says, it is finished. And the temple veil, physically in the temple, is torn in two. Meaning it actually happens. This physical sign happens. There's an earthquake. It says that the sun gets blackened for full six hours. And then it says dead people come out of their tombs. Jesus is put in the ground, and then he's raised three days later. And then he stays there for 40 days and ministers. But then when he ascends, what the Bible is going to tell us is he goes into the heavenly temple, something entirely different, something that the copies of the earth were meant to show, but they couldn't show fully. They were merely copies, but the substance was Christ. And then in the heavenly temple, he himself is the high priest. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself applies the blood that once for all, forgives sins forever. And then he sits down at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high and he rules and reigns according to the new and better promises that he has given in the new covenant. And so this old covenant is passing away. This is what Hebrews is telling us, but the new covenant is coming. The final domino that had to fall in all of this was the place of worship. This makes sense. The priesthood, the priesthood class was already fallen when Christ died on the cross The sacrifice had already fallen. He was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Okay, the promises already at this point were now new and better. There's a better covenant being offered. But the place has to fall. And if you remember, the promise that God had given to the Israelites was that if they obeyed the covenant, they would get blessings. But if they did not, they would get what? Judgment. The final judgment on Jerusalem is the closing of the door of this old covenant. It's the closing of the door that this place would be the place that everyone must come to in order to meet God. But instead, the place is Jesus Christ. I want to read one more uh, Hebrews passage and then we're going to go into closing. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 28. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and with hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant of God that I commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a description of the old covenant and the purpose of the temple. Moses was utilizing all these sacrificial rites in order to mediate worship for the people and at onement of God's people with God himself. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, meaning there's a heavenly reality of the temple that is too big for me to understand, and then there's an earthly copy that has to be purified. Because why? Because it's earthly and has to be purified in order for there to be worship. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices, listen to this, than these, meaning when Christ comes into the heavenly, you can't bring the blood of bulls and goats. You got to bring what? the blood of the eternal son, only begotten, light from very light, God from very God of the same essence of the father himself to come into the heavenlies and apply what the blood of the precious son to the heavenly realms for Christ entered, not into the holy places made with hands, not temples, not tabernacles, not curtains, not badger skin, but what? These are the copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself. And where did he enter into? To the presence of God on our behalf. He's not like the high priest who goes through the the outer courts and then into the inner courts and then into the most holy place and then into the holy of holies. No, and then he's in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God with the Ark of the Covenant. No, Jesus went into heaven and he went into the presence of God himself, the Father, there in the heavenly realms. And he did what? Applied the sacrifice for you and I of himself. Once, for all, forever. Listen to this. He says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So he says he didn't have to keep coming into the heavenly temple, he did it once. He says if he had to do that, he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world is what the scripture says. Let's go to the next line here. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of what? Himself not lambs, but himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Listen, for those of you who are waiting on next week, so Christ has been offered to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that's what the first advent was, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, the second coming, he'll come back again. We're gonna see that one more time in one more verse before the end. Now, I read all of that to you for one reason, the role of the temple was completely fulfilled in christ and therefore it was inevitable that it would have to come down and crumble so that the promised both the promise of blessing and curses would be fulfilled the blessing of those who obeyed and responded to the covenant would see christ for who he is and they would respond to jesus and they would hear jesus' words and they would flee to the mountains and they would not be destroyed in jerusalem But for those who rejected the Lord Jesus and hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, they would stay in Jerusalem and they try to protect the temple and they try to protect the city and it would be completely and utterly destroyed just like it was when Babylon did it the first time. But this time, uniquely, it wasn't just a destruction that would be rebuilt, but no, this destruction of the temple would be so that the old covenant would be seen as abolished and the new covenant would be inaugurated. A new age is being dawned here in Christ. Here we see that no longer will worshipers go to the temple in Jerusalem, but I want you to remember the poignant prophecy that Jesus gave the woman at the well. Woman, I tell you that the day is coming and even is now here that true worshipers will not worship me on this mountain or on that mountain, but they will worship me in spirit and in truth. What's the context of that prophecy? She was arguing whether the Samaritans are right about worshiping on Mount Gerizim or whether the Jews were right about worshiping on the temple mount. And Jesus says, both are going down. It's about me. He says, the day is coming and is now here. True worshipers won't go to that place anymore. They will come through me. The true temple. Now, I wanna close with, what do we do about it? Because we just read a lot of history, right? And you're like, okay, I'm not a Jew. The reason this is so essential is because we're like 2,000 years from this happening, and so we don't feel the fully affected weight. We have 2,000 years of Christian history now under our belt. And so when I say some of these things, you guys go, yeah, duh, that's just called Christianity. It's world-changing, cosmically world-changing. I want you to understand me. For 4,000 years, if people were going to come near to God, they had to go near through a human mediator who sprinkled blood, who sacrificed it perfectly, who came to a temple and made sure that they did it the right way. If they were going to come into the presence of the holy God. And Jesus shows up and through one act on his own, opens up the gates of the very temple itself that we have access to the Father through his name. That means when you wake up in the morning, you can pray in Jesus' name and be heard by the Father and you think that's normal. It ain't normal. There's nothing normal about it. It's because we think of our God as way less holy than he really is. Way less other, way less powerful than he really is. He's letting us have access as children, daughters and sons through the name of Jesus when we are like, well, if you remember in the book of Zechariah, we're like Joshua, the high priest who's just totally filthy from head to toe. And we're going to trample the courts of the Lord, but every time we call upon the name of Jesus, we're cleansed from head to toe and made righteous when we come before the throne of God. Most of us aren't snuggling up in bed to read Josephus, and that's why this kind of seems like way beyond us, you know. But I want to read to you what the writer of Hebrews says, even to the Hebrews of the time, about why this is significant. This is the last thing I'll read, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer of Hebrews says friends the old covenant was that that's what was offered a holy god consuming fire that if you were to if you were to mistake the rites of sacrificial worship you'd go into the holy of holies and drop dead immediately if you were a user who tried to catch the ark you would die on the spot trembling with fear a god of great trembling he said that's not what you've been given in the new covenant It's the same God, but you've been offered a totally different deal. You have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I wish we could spend a whole sermon talking about all of those innumerable blessings. You've been given the covenant that offers you into the presence of God as friend, as child of God. Now you understand why John writes, see what kind of love the father has for us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Our covenant is that we can know that tomorrow morning that we can wake up and be sure that our sins are forgiven and our, sec- our, our eternal security is sure because Christ has paid the price forever. You can go to work tomorrow and you can share the gospel with your friend and you don't have to worry about what ethnicity they are, what religion that they were, the sins that they've had, their past. You know that you can offer this promise. If you would but call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved and you'll have access to the Father forever and ever And you could be sure of that. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood that's given to us. Listen to me, friends. No amount of Bible reading, no amount of volunteering is ever going to add to your moral record before Christ. In salvific terms, it's done. We don't have to sacrifice anymore. You don't have to go like the prophets of Baal and start cutting your wrists so that God will hear you. Jesus' wrists have already been pierced and he does hear you. When you, when you ask and you pray in his name. This is what it means to be given the new covenant. And when we talk about the destruction of the temple, we're talking about the entering in of the new covenant age where Christ is king and we no longer have to make pilgrimages to specific places on the earth. Do you know why? Because the son of God made a pilgrimage from heaven to earth for you and me. That's the good news of the gospel. So what should we do about it? Well, let's see what the writer of Hebrews says. First, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them on the earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ, the ascended king, through us and through the heralds of the people of the church, he is proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He is saying, come Back to me. And the writer of Hebrews says, When the new covenant of the gospel is preached, proclaimed, and heralded, don't refuse that offer. It's the best offer that's ever been given. For us, it's don't grow lax in responding to the gospel each day. Don't fall prey to taking for granted the gift that God's given you, the gift that you have in Christ. Don't take it for granted. Number two, he says this. He says, at that, at this time, the voice, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Jesus will come back one more time to shake the earth and what can be shaken will be shaken. But friends, listen to this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's have gratitude in our hearts this morning. We are so often fearful, and I understand why. Turn on the news, you're worried about the economy, you're worried about what the election's gonna bring, you're worried about one president or one politician or one king or one person who's gonna maybe make an empire fall. I want you to understand this. That is the rule, not the exception. Empires rise and fall. Earthly empires teeter and totter. But we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful that the kingdom of Christ will stand Forever, and that's your true citizenship. You have nothing to fear. Lastly, he says, This let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God, our God, is a consuming fire. And that's my invitation to you this morning. Let's worship God this morning and this week in word and in deed. I pray this morning that you'll worship with your song and that you'll worship in the Lord's Supper, but I pray that this week you will worship God by acknowledging that this new covenant reality that you and I both live in is meant to be applied, not just celebrated. We're meant to actually apply the blood of Christ. We're meant to actually apply the access that we have to the Father. We're meant to apply the message we've been sent to give. And in so doing, we honor our God, who is truly majestic and glorious. And the writer of Hebrews says, he is a consuming fire. Why is that? Why is that great? Well, it's great because he has not changed. But the only difference is, friends, in the new covenant, you're invited to be in the presence of a consuming fire and not be consumed. That's the invitation this morning, is come into the presence of our God who's a consuming fire and not be burned. Because you come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is timeless and true. And we come now before you in the name of Jesus because we know that we are accepted We know that by our own moral rectitude, there's nothing that we could say or do that could ever make us acceptable. But because of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, we have been made righteous in your sight. Thank you that you see us as clean. And for any that are under the sound of my voice who have yet to call out to your name, I pray they would hear from heaven now and that they would call upon the name of Jesus to be made righteous and clean in your sight. As we take of your supper, we pray that you would satisfy us, bring the satisfaction that comes only from you. And finally, as we sing, I pray that the meditation of our heart would match the words of our lips and that we would not be like the hypocrites of your day, but that truly we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.